scripture reading this morning will be from Luke chapter 22, verses 54 through 62. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. The servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with them, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you are talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Scripture is filled with examples of women and men who encountered difficulty, experienced transformation, and were able to overcome. When the heat of life intensifies, God wants to work in your life and make you resilient. I'm not sure you could hear that, but our series is called Resilient. And this series, series has given us a great opportunity to see from the wisdom of God's word how to deal with setbacks and struggles in life. What do you do? And, and sometimes these things, these difficult times, these setbacks, these struggles are because we've just been dealt a bad hand. It's just we live in a fallen world, we live in a broken world, and there is sickness and there is suffering and there is sin, and, and sometimes we are victimized by the fallen world in which we live. Sometimes it's because other people have done things or said things that impact us. Maybe sometimes it's just bad circumstances, but sometimes it's because we've made poor decisions. Sometimes our setback, our struggle, is because of us. And that is certainly the case in today's story. So if you have a Bible, you might open it up to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22 will be our first text today. In 2011, Bridgestone ran a Super Bowl ad, a commercial. You know how expensive those are. So there's a lot of pressure. But they ran an ad that got a lot of people's attention. And I think a lot of people were able to relate to it. The title of the commercial was called Reply All. Here's the commercial. Oh, oh no. Rod, you sent this email, Reply All. You hit Reply All. No! You know, I was wrong. You just sent this email to me. <laughs> Could you imagine? <laughs> For drivers who want to get the most out of their cars, it's Bridgestone or nothing. Maybe you remember that commercial. I, I remember that. You know, the funny thing is, it, it, it's based on a true story. The, the creative mind behind this commercial actually sent an email. He meant to send it to a co-worker, and he was making fun of some of the other people in different uh, advertising teams who were competing for the idea for this Super Bowl ad, but he sent it to reply all. He replied all, and so everyone saw it. And, you know, they talked about it, all was forgiven, and that's where the idea came from. But maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you know what that's like. Maybe you have said something or done something or sent something or posted something that you regret, and you just want to take it back. 
You just want to rewind the tape. You want to run around like a madman and, and try to soften its blow or remove it or explain it or justify it or do something to, to take it away because you know that you have hurt someone. You've disappointed someone. You've let someone down. Maybe you know what that's like. Someone once said that hurt people hurt people. And I think that's true, but I think it's also true that human people hurt people. It's just something many of us, most of us, maybe all of us do. We sometimes say things and our words leave scars. We sometimes do things and our actions leave uh, pain and hurt with other people. Sometimes people we love. Sometimes people in our homes, in our family. Sometimes friends. Sometimes in our church family. And more than anything, we want to take it back. We want to make it like it didn't happen. And sometimes it's intentional. Maybe we are upset. Maybe we react emotionally. Maybe we have been hurt. But sometimes it's unintentional. We didn't mean to, to hurt someone. We didn't mean to, to have our words or our actions hurt someone. But the truth is, they still hurt. They still sting. What do you do? How do you recover from something like that? How do you bounce back? How do you show resilience so many times we look at the other person's point of view, and there's a lot of value in that. When someone hurts you, what do you do? But today, let's think about what happens when we disappoint someone, when we hurt someone, when it's our words and our actions, intentional or unintentional, that leave scars, that leave wounds. What do we do? I can't think of anyone else in Scripture, maybe, whose story more applies to what we're talking about and that is Simon Peter. Maybe you know Simon Peter's story. Maybe you're new to the Bible and you don't really know. Before Jesus went to the cross, he was in an upper room. He was with his disciples. They were having the Passover meal together. And Jesus did several things and he had several important conversations. He instituted the Lord's Supper. He washed his disciples' feet. But Luke's gospel tells us that it's that moment where some of the disciples choose to argue about which of them is the greatest about which of them will have the seat of honor. And Jesus steps in and once again reminds them that in the kingdom of God, life is different than it is in the world. That true greatness isn't found in being first, in being privileged, in being the most powerful. That true greatness is found in being last, in serving, and sacrificing. And as he's teaching them this lesson, then he has some very specific words to Simon Peter. This is what he says in Luke chapter 22, verse 31. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. <laughs> Jesus knows what's about to happen. Not only does he know that he is about to go to the cross, he is about to be convicted of a crime he didn't commit, and he's about to be crucified. Jesus knows that, but he also knows what his disciples are going to do, that they're going to leave him, that Peter's going to fail epically. And so he says, Peter, I'm praying for you. Be strong in the faith. But again, Jesus knows what's going to happen, so he includes this, when you come back, when you get back on your feet, Peter, be an encouragement, be a source of strength, strength to these other guys. You see, Jesus is four or five moves ahead of the game. 
But Peter is stuck back here somewhere, and he's still trying to get his mind wrapped around this idea of, wait a minute, what, what do you mean my faith might fail? What do you mean you have to pray that I would stay strong? What do you mean Satan is coming after us? So this is what Peter says in verse 33. Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Peter declares his loyalty to Jesus. In Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel, they both give us some nuance to Peter's statement. Matthew 26, verse 35, Peter declared, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. You see, Peter's intentions were good. His desires were noble. But you and I know that making an oath of loyalty in the calmness of an upper room with friends is much easier than carrying it out in the cold night air among foes. Peter makes a pledge. He makes a promise. He has good intentions, but pledges and promises are easy when they're not challenged, and Peter's will be challenged very shortly. You see, Jesus was arrested by an angry mob. They came for him. He was dragged away to face a mockery of a trial. And all the disciples, what did they do? They scattered like mice in a barn when the light is turned on. But Peter lingers. He seems to linger. Maybe he's curious. Maybe he wants to know what's going to happen. Maybe he wants to finish the job he started in Gethsemane in the garden when he cut off the servant's ear as they came for Jesus. Maybe he remembers the pledge that he made, Jesus. I will never leave you. I will go to prison. I will go to death with you, Jesus. Maybe he just doesn't have anywhere else to go. But Peter follows at a safe distance. At least he thinks it's safe. Until this happens. Verse 54. Then seizing him, talking about Jesus, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you are talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. Peter predicted it, and sure enough it happened. Or Jesus predicted it, and sure enough it happened. Peter disowned Jesus. He denied even knowing him. And the rooster crowed to verify the tragic account. Those good intentions... They melted away under the heat of the courtyard fire and the accusations of those who warmed themselves by it. That pledge of loyalty, that oath to go to death with Jesus, it couldn't withstand the threat of hostility. Peter disowned and he denied Jesus. And why did he do that? Maybe he did it because he was afraid. Maybe he did it for self-preservation. Why do we hurt other people? Why do we allow our words that we speak and write and send and post to cause damage? Ah, Because we're afraid, because we feel threatened, because of self-preservation, and so many other reasons. Peter denied Jesus, and certainly his words must have hurt Jesus. And then we have this 
this gut-wrenching, most poignant verse, maybe one of the most emotive verses in all the New Testament. Verse 61, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. You see, the damage was done. Peter's denial was irreversible. He couldn't run around like a madman and try to take it back from everyone who heard there around the campfire what he had said, that he didn't know Jesus, that he wasn't with Jesus. There was nothing he could do to remove it. He couldn't soften its blow. There was nothing. It was just there. And he had to sit in the sorrow and the guilt. And the text says that when his eyes met the gaze of Jesus, Peter remembered, and he went outside, and he wept bitterly. I think that has to be our first response, doesn't it? When we hurt someone, when we disappoint someone, when we let someone, especially someone we love, when we let them down, we must come to terms with the pain that we have caused. We must take ownership of it. You see, we need to realize it and be responsible for it. We must allow ourselves to be confronted with the pain that we cause others. And that is not pleasant, and that is not fun, and that's why we often avoid it. And yet that's the right thing to do. Sometimes that happens in in difficult conversations with other people. Sometimes it happens in moments of clarity. Maybe times of prayer and meditation as God reveals to us the damage we have caused whether intentional or unintentional. If we aren't responsive enough to see it, we will dismiss it. And we will assume that we're okay, that we never say or do anything to hurt anyone else. Yeah, other people hurt me, but I never do or say anything to hurt anyone. Our hearts can become calloused. We can become arrogant and prideful and assume that our words and actions have no negative impact on those around us. But when we come to terms with the pain that we cause, it convicts us. If we have the heart of Christ, if we have the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, it should convict us. Paul wrote in Colossians 3, verse 12, Therefore, as God's chosen people, that's important, as God's chosen people, you don't live like the rest of the world lives. Your values are different. The way that you live, the way that you treat people, the way you view people, it's different. God has chosen you. You're not better than anyone else, but he's chosen you to live life in the kingdom of God, not just in heaven someday, but right here. And that means living differently. He says, as chosen people of God, holy and dearly loved, Clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. In other words, let the Spirit of God bring forth the fruit of the Spirit in your life. That is the heart of Christ. That's the heart that we are to have. This heart of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. And that's not weakness. Sometimes people look at those characteristics and say, that's weakness. You need to be strong. And we come up with some human definition of strength. And maybe we even wrap it in scripture. And we remember, oh yeah, Jesus turned the tables over in the temple. See, that's the heart of Jesus too. And you're right, it is. 
But I have heard that verse used and misused so many times to justify bullying of other people or harshness to other people. Go back and read the context for what happened there and what Jesus was doing and who he was defending. The heart of Christ is a heart of compassion and mercy. And that kind of heart sees and cares when our words and our actions hurt others. When I allow God to develop that kind of heart, a heart of compassion and kindness, I begin to see and I begin to care about the pain I've caused others. On the other hand, a heart of pride dismisses the pain. It justifies the pain. Somehow it can find a defense for the pain that I've caused. A heart of pride takes a different vantage point, that of someone in authority, whereas others are under me. Or as a victim, what do you mean I've hurt them? Do you know what they've done to me? Do you know how they've hurt me? A heart of pride takes the position of entitlement. I deserve to lift myself up. And if that means pushing others down, then so be it. I deserve that. Peter is moved to tears when he understands the pain he has caused Jesus. And I love the way the text says it. It's not just tears. It's not just, you know, a tear rolling down the cheek. It says he wept bitterly. When's the last time you wept bitterly? And that ugly cry, you know, snots going everywhere and you're uncontrollable. You know what that is. That's how Peter responds here. And how do you think Peter felt as the events continued to unfold? As he either watched or heard about Jesus being falsely accused, being beaten, taken away, and ultimately hung on a Roman cross, knowing that the last interaction that he had with Jesus was this one, this one of denial. Not just once, but three times. How do you think Peter felt? Maybe that's why Peter took off in a full sprint to the tomb when he heard that Jesus was alive. Maybe he he wanted to say something or do something to repair the damage. Maybe he wanted to apologize. Maybe he wanted, yes, to see for himself, to see if it was true, but maybe something was on his heart. He needed to express it to Jesus. But it seems that Jesus really didn't give him the chance because Jesus approached him first. After Jesus' death and resurrection, Peter and some of the other disciples ended up doing what they know to do. One of the only things they know to do, they go fishing. They go fishing on the Sea of Galilee, and they fish all night long, but the fish just aren't that active. They can't seem to catch many fish. It seems like Peter is really not that great of a fisherman without Jesus. Have you noticed that? It's a good thing that God helped him become a fisher of men, because a fisher of fish, he didn't seem so great. So they're out all night. They're not really catching any fish. It's the morning now, and my guess is they're exhausted, they're frustrated, They're going to pull the boat up, clean the nets, grab a bite for breakfast, and maybe take a nap. But there's a guy on the shore calling out to them, Hey, caught any fish? Well, no, not really. (laughs) He says, well, throw your nets on the starboard side, on the right side of the boat. Try again. All right. So they throw the nets down. You can guess what happens. They begin to pull in this huge catch of fish. The net is overflowing with fish. And as they're struggling to get the net into the boat, 
John has this sense of deja vu wash over him. The light bulb goes off. He knows that's not just some guy on the shore. What does he say? He turns to Peter and says, it's the Lord. It's Jesus. And that response triggers the impulsive action of Peter, which is not uncommon. And this time he doesn't run like he did to the tomb. What does he do? He jumps out of the boat and swims to the shore. The other disciples follow him in the boat. And Jesus invites them to breakfast. Isn't it interesting what Peter does? When most of us would avoid the people we hurt, especially, you know, when we know we've hurt them, we feel a little guilty, we might avoid them. Peter goes to Jesus. And he doesn't him haul around, he jumps in and swims to Jesus. Jesus invites them to a fireside breakfast. Another fire of burning coals, just like the one in the courtyard. Another opportunity for Peter. So after breakfast, Jesus turns to Peter. Maybe he calls him aside. Maybe he does it in front of the others so that they could see this as well. I'm not sure. But he speaks directly to Peter. And this is what he says. John chapter 21, verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know, you know I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? (laughs) Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. And then he went on, very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself, you went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. What a conversation. There's so much happening in that conversation. First of all, three heartfelt questions to correspond with three heavy-hearted denials. Do you love me? That was the question that Jesus Asked Peter. Jesus looked Peter in the eye. He wanted to know where Peter stood. Yes, I know what you said. I know what happened on the night I was taken. But I need to know, are you with me now? You see, there's more chapters to be written in this story, Peter. There's more chapters to be written in your story. Clearly, Jesus' purpose was to restore that relationship with Peter, to reinstate Peter, to validate Peter despite what he had said despite what he had done and Peter confirms his love for Jesus each time maybe more emphatically each time much like his earlier denials he says you know I love you he pledges his love but remember what we already said pledges and promises good intentions they don't really hold up when they face the fire of opposition so Jesus makes it very clear what his pledge of love means means you have a job Peter you're going to shepherd my sheep you're going to be an important person in the kingdom being revealed through the church here on earth you're going to provide nourishment and leadership and Peter you need to know that it means one day you're going to be put to death because of it are you with me do you really love me 
Because, Jesus says, that's what it means. Whatever you feared at the fire, at the courtyard, all of that and more is going to happen. So now it's time to decide. Isn't that the nature, the true nature of confession and repentance? You see, we don't read that Peter ever says, I'm sorry, but his life, his actions bear witness to his remorse and his sorrow. When Jesus says, I have a job for you, when Jesus says, you're going to die for that job, Peter says, I'm in. And we know that he is. We know what happens. Genuine confession and repentance is a change of heart, but it's also a change of direction. It's a change of life. It's more than words. When we come to terms with the pain that we cause other people, we should be moved by it, and we should move because of it. It should impact how we live and what we do, our actions, the direction of our life. We know that's what Peter did. Peter went on to feed the sheep of Jesus. At Pentecost, he preached with boldness. He went on to become a a force for the gospel. No matter what happened, persecution came, yes. And ultimately, he was killed. Tradition says he was crucified upside down because he didn't want to die the same way Jesus did. Nonetheless, he was martyred for his faith. He gave his life because he loved Jesus. And he didn't do those things to to earn Jesus' love. And he didn't do those things to make up for his earlier denials. He did them in response to Jesus. What a beautiful story. What happened on the beach there at the Sea of Galilee. What a beautiful story of unrelenting love and forgiveness and restoration. When we went to Israel, we got to visit this site. I, I must tell you, I... I know I tell a lot of Israel stories. I feel kind of like the friend that you have that takes out their phone and says, let me show you this picture. And they start scrolling through all their pictures, you know, of what they had for breakfast and sunsets and flowers. And you're like, okay, that's nice. Oh, yeah, okay. I feel kind of like that every time I mention Israel and show pictures. But I got to tell you, that's one of the reasons I went was to be your eyes and ears too because I know we all won't have that opportunity. And I wanted to bring some of it back and make it real and alive for you. So, so bear with me, please, as I, as I tell some of these stories and show some of these pictures. Um, but we got to visit this site. It's on the northwest side, northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. There's a small Franciscan church named after Peter there on the beach. This church was built in 1933, but it was built on some of the remains of a much older church from the 4th century. And what's remarkable about about this little church named after Peter is it incorporates this huge limestone rock. This rock, part of it is inside the church, and it goes into the wall and spills out onto the beach. It's this huge rock. And as you can see from the picture, there's a, a sign there. It says, Mensa Christi. That is Latin for table of Christ. It is believed that that is the spot that that is the spot where Jesus had this breakfast, this meal with his disciples. Right outside that little church, there are 12 stones, good-sized stones, on the beach near the water's edge. These stones are thought to represent the 12 apostles. They were put there long ago, and they are 
corner pillar stones, they are stones for, for pillars for a colonnade, you know, columns or pillars. But with the pillars gone, all that is left is the base. And it just happens to be in the shape of a heart. You can see how it became a, a corner or a, a, a base for a pillar, but the, again, the pillars are gone, so it's just these hearts, these stone hearts. And to give you some perspective on the size, here's Riley standing on one of them. So these are good size stones. And so at the very spot that is believed to be the place where Jesus had this breakfast with his disciples, and he asked Peter, do you love me? And in that conversation, Jesus expressed this incredible forgiveness and mercy and love. There are hearts. <laughs> How appropriate. I didn't expect that when we went there, but it left an impression on me. Because what Jesus did in that spot was show us how to love people, how to love people that we've hurt, how to express love for him and in his name by reconciling with people. Now, as you bring this home, as you think about your own life and words and things that you've done to hurt others, what if they don't show that kind of love to you? What if they're not so ready to forgive you? What do you do when your words and your actions have disappointed, have let others down, have hurt, hurt other people? Maybe you've caused your parents great pain. Parents, maybe you've caused your children pain. Maybe someone stood up for you and you turned their back, you turned your back on them. Maybe you let a friend down. Maybe someone in your family, maybe a fellow Christian. What do you do? How do you respond? I think we can learn much from this story. And so let me put up a few words here that we've already talked about most of them, but maybe just put it together so you can remember it a little bit easier. Here are the words. Responsibility, remorse, repentance, and response. You see, it begins with taking responsibility, taking ownership of the pain that we have caused not excusing it, not dismissing it, not saying, well, that's theirs to deal with, not saying they deserved it, but really coming to terms with the pain that you've caused, taking ownership of it. Maybe that is why Peter ran to the tomb. Maybe that is why he jumped in and swam to the shore. Maybe he wanted to take some ownership, take responsibility. It's a very biblical thing. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, as he explains life in the kingdom of God and how we are to live, he says this in verse 23, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come back and offer your gift. But wait a minute, Jesus. Worship is important. Making this offering helps me to be in good standing with you. That seems important. And Jesus says, as important as that is, you leave it right there. Because what is also important is that you be reconciled to someone who has something against you. Notice what he doesn't say there. <clears throat> he doesn't say, if someone has hurt you, if you have something against someone. He says, if you know someone has something against you, if you have hurt someone, if you've sinned against someone, you take the initiative. You go to them. Own up to the pain that you've caused rather than justifying it or dismissing it. 
You see, that's a sign of spiritual maturity. That is a sign of spiritual maturity. A sign of spiritual immaturity is letting it go, is glossing over it, is dismissing it, or justifying it. A sign of spiritual maturity is taking ownership. And when we take ownership, it should move us. If we have that heart of compassion and kindness, it should compel us to weep bitterly. Sometimes we need to weep bitterly over our actions. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, that godly sorrow brings repentance. And so that weeping turns into action. And we repent. And we go to that person or to those people that we have hurt, that we have offended, that we have sinned against. And in true, genuine love and concern, we repent. James says in James 5, 16, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. But remember, it's not just words. It's not just confessing with our lips. It's a response. It's actions. It's a changed life. Jesus told Peter that your life needs to bear witness to what you are saying when you say that you love me. And again, it wasn't, that action wasn't to earn Jesus' forgiveness. It wasn't to make up for what he had done earlier. It was a response to the love and the mercy and the forgiveness that Jesus showed him. I would encourage you to wrestle with those elements. Taking responsibility, showing remorse, asking for forgiveness and repenting and then responding with action. And apply that to your situation and see what it looks like and pray over that. In a podcast called This American Life, the host said this. He said, some regrets just never go away. People tell us they forgive us, and we try to forgive ourselves, but we still know that we did wrong, that we hurt someone. He said, it's real. And that feeling, it can immobilize us, he says. It can immobilize us. He says, ideally, we learn from those situations and we take it into future situations. He said, but many times when we hurt someone else, it becomes like a pebble in our shoe. Have you ever had a pebble in your shoe? <laughs> he went on to say, it doesn't always slow us down, but sometimes it does. And it's just always there. It's always there. And it hurts. It's always there and it hurts. Every step of the way. Wouldn't it be nice just to take off your shoe and get rid of that rock? And some of us, as we continue to do damage, as we continue to say things and do things that hurt others, man, our shoes are filling up. I want you to go back to that picture of the heart on the beach there at the Sea of Galilee. One of the things that I noticed immediately was, at least there, there wasn't sand there were pebbles, small rocks, millions of them. From the water's edge all the way 20, 30 yards up, I mean, there were just pebbles and rocks everywhere. It reminds me what Jesus offers. He offers freedom. He offers us a way to unload that pain, to unload the pain that comes with hurting others the guilt, the pain. That's what he did for Peter. 
He lifted that burden from him. That's what he can do for you. You see, because there are more chapters to be written in the story, there are more chapters to be written in your story. Yes, hurt people hurt people. And when we hurt people, it hurts. But there is a better way. Jesus offers a life of freedom where burdens are lifted, where pain is redeemed, where stories are rewritten. A way of life that brings forgiveness and restoration and peace, not only to the ones that we hurt, but to those of us who hurt others. That's what Jesus offers. And so as we close, I want you to know that Jesus is asking you the same question that he asked Peter around that fire on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And the question is this, do you love me? That's it. Do you love me? And if you do, it means something. More than a verbal, audible response, it means a change of direction, a change of life. For you, maybe it means taking that step, putting Christ on in baptism, becoming a Christian. We would love to celebrate that with you. Maybe it means seeking forgiveness from someone else. Seeking forgiveness first and foremost from God, but maybe someone else. Maybe a phone call or a text or sitting up coffee with someone. Maybe it means just getting support. You can go to our website and reach out to us on the prayer page. In just a moment when we stand, we're going to have a couple of our shepherds and their wives in the parlor, a room right behind me. And you can exit out any of these doors, make your way there. They would be more than happy to receive you and pray for you and encourage you. Or you can come down to the front, and we as a church family will lift you up in prayer. Jesus looks at you, and he says, Do you love me? Do you love me? Let's stand and sing.